Rolling, rolling, rolling. Roll it, Mark. Let's go. Yeah, yo, yo, take, <laughs> take, take, take it away. Oh, now I can say your name, right? Now you can say my name. Yeah, man. Oh, there's no more hiding. What's up, chat? What's going on? Yeah, what's up, uh, Leah? Uh, well, that feels weird. Well, today we're joined by the great Kevin J. Anderson, uh, who's uh, most famous uh, in my life for uh, the Jedi uh, Academy series, which was one of the earlier uh, Star Wars uh, trilogies to come out pretty much. And I'm probably going to forget my my exact dates and the chat will go crazy, but um, it came out, if I remember correctly, pretty much right after the Zon trilogy, right? Or or in, in, in somehow in... in Maybe not after all the Thrawn trilogy books. Maybe after the second one, your first one came out. No, ninety four. It, it was right, right then. That Tim, Tim's was the very first hardcover trilogy, and mine was the first paperback trilogy that came out right after that. And Tim's books came out one a year in hardcover, but they wanted mine to come out much faster, so they brought them out in paperback, and they came out like every three months or something like that. Like boom, 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 they came out, which which meant I had to write them all that fast. Um, and get them out. Uh, there was another book between Tim's trilogy and mine. It was Trusa Bakura by Kathy Tires. Mm -hmm. um, and then and then there was mine. So it was really kind of fun at that time because all we had to watch was the movies. And there, there wasn't 400 other books that we had to read to keep track of that this was, this was wide open territory. And it was just, and when Tim did his book, so I started, I got asked to write the Jedi Academy books, I think right after Tim's first one was out. So that was like the one and only Star Wars book. And at the time, Star Trek books were coming out every single month. It was just this machine, Star Trek, Star Trek, every single yeah. month. And when Tim did Heir to the Empire, it was like, whoa, Star Wars. We haven't seen Star Wars in forever. And that, that became a number one New York Times bestseller. And basically it showed everybody and the publishers like, holy crap, there's a lot of Star Wars fans out there where all of us would go, well, duh, of course there's yeah. Star Wars fans. <laughs> yeah. um, and so his first book came out and they approached me right, right after that. So I had, uh, I read his second one, Dark, Dark Force Rising. Uh, they gave me a review copy of it because they mm -hmm. kind of print up some review copies before it's published. Mm -hmm. And, then I was talking with Tim a lot on the phone as he was writing it as I was and as I was planning mine, and he sent sent me the manuscript for the last command. Uh, so I'm like getting up to speed to write mine um, right after his, and I and we we planned this together. So he even planted a few things in the last command, a couple of characters that appeared in mine, and and so we wanted this to all roll out. So my books were coming right after the end of the last command, and. Then in the middle of that, somebody told us, oh, yeah, there's this Dark Empire comic graphic novel series that takes place right between them. And I went, what? There's a comic series? How come nobody told us about the comic series? Right. So I said, you better send me some free comics. So they sent me the, the Dark. And I love the Dark Empire thing. It was just great. But obviously entirely independent of Tim's. Mm -hmm. So I got to retcon like, OK, now I got to fit both of these things together. And, and at first, Lucasfilm said, um, you know, it's the comics that, you know, you don't, you don't have to take that into account. Just don't worry about what happens in it. And I <laughs> said, well, I said, well, what, what happens in it? And they go, well, you know, Leia has a third child. Luke goes over to the dark side and Emperor Palpatine comes back. And I go, oh yeah, so nothing significant happens. <laughs> right, don't right. worry about that. So, so, no, so I, 
I insisted that's, on putting that stuff in. That's really interesting because obviously that that Dark Horse uh, comic uh, uh, series that you're talking about, Dark Empire, is legendary, right? It's like is where we first see the whole cloning of the Emperor. I mean, it's it's some legendary stuff that resonates to this day. Um, it's really interesting to me to hear you say that when you were writing the novel, um, you know, obviously you're 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 very tied into the Zon trilogy, and I really respect and appreciate that there are so many tie-ins down to references to Zahn and, and characters that are going back and forth. Those two novels definitely take place in the same universe, but they told you not to do that for the comics? Well, they, they didn't tell me not to. I, I think they hadn't really thought that far ahead because remember, Tips was just the first one they did. <laughs> and, and unlike Star Trek, where there was a whole big plan month after month, Star Trek, I think Tim's book maybe took him a little bit by surprise by how hugely popular it was. Mm -hmm. And then they asked me for another trilogy and then they started thinking, well, wait, do we have, what, what is canon and what isn't and what do we put all this stuff in? And um, I mean, a lot of this stuff, what we were, we were making it up and I worked a lot with Tom Veach, the guy who wrote the Dark Empire series. Uh, and he taught me how to write comics, and then he and I wrote the whole Tales of the Jedi thing and the Dark Lords of the Sith and yeah. XR Kun, and it just kind of mushroomed and blew all over the place. And remember, at the beginning, there was really only a handful of us working on it, and uh, the Lucasfilm people were very often calling me or sending me a fax saying, another author wants to do this. Can he do that? And, you know, it just... That's cool. So they'd, like, check in with you. Well, and, and we were really involved. And, and I mean, now it's this gigantic, well, now it's, it's Disney and even bigger. But but right. at the time, it was kind of like this this secret clubhouse that we would all just like get on the phone. And um, you're probably familiar with these, the the anthologies that I did, the Tales from Jabba's Palace and Tales of the Mos Eisley Cantina and stuff. Yeah. And all of those stories, I mean, all of us authors were just on the phone. Like, what did you do in your story so I could put it into my story? And, and it was just like, everybody just loved working on star Wars and it was such a blast. And we got to, um, you know, we, we got to play with these toys that we watched when we were growing up. And, and I mean, I saw star Wars when it, when it came out in the movie theater. I mean, I was in high school and I, I remember sitting and, and I was the science fiction nerd and, and I went with a couple of other science fiction nerds and nobody else wanted to go see a science fiction movie. And we saw it the first week and nobody had, any expectations nobody knew anything about this movie and i'm in this movie theater in a shopping mall in madison wisconsin and we're sitting in the in the movie theater like i mean look i, I watched creature features and sci-fi cinema and all the black and white things and i was a star trek fan and so what i mean i love science fiction but but none of us was prepared for star wars and you all of your audience you have to kind of rewind and put yourself in the uh 1977 was that the year it came out i think that's what it was yeah was it yep. um put yourself in that mindset that the the fanfare opens up the music and then the screen is black and and then the roll-up starts you've never seen anything yeah. like these tilted letters music just in space yeah and then the music and then the star destroyer comes overhead and it keeps coming and it keeps coming and it keeps coming and it keeps coming and it's it's like you all have seen it a million times now, but we never saw anything like that. This was the first time our eyeballs had that. And and another thing, when when the Millennium Falcon goes into hyperspace for the first time and those stars elongate into your eyes, never seen anything like that. And of course, it's been imitated so many times, it's nothing special anymore. But 
but it's still yeah, special I, to me. I mean, it's still, well, it yeah, still yeah, gets but, me. But I mean, just imagine like the first time anybody ever saw anything like that. I think yeah. we were walking out of that theater with like with like knobby knees and, and like, so, wow, how did that how did that happen? So 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 keep me there. Um, how how did you actually get the gig or the opportunity to uh, work on a, on a Star Wars? Well, remember, like I said, Tim's first book had come out, but it wasn't like something I was trying to do because we didn't even know there was a Star Wars publishing program. I didn't even know there were comics that were out because I was I had I was writing my own science fiction books. My um, I think I had published seven uh, original science fiction books and a couple of them got nominated for awards and they got great reviews and and I'm going to shatter all your illusions. But a, a critically acclaimed novel basically means nobody bought it. Um, right. It great reviews, but it did not fly off the shelves like crazy. So um, what critically acclaimed means no one bought it, really? <laughs> Well, I I, I'm being a well, little like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. sarcastic there. You know, it's like it's like the movies that get nominated for the Academy Awards. Those aren't movies anybody ever watched. Right. Uh, well, somebody did. But um, anyway, I I wrote seven of my own novels and I worked with the editors at Bantam Books. And, and I didn't know that I was auditioning for this. I mean, I um, they apparently... Well, they liked working with me because I wasn't hard to work with. I always delivered on time and and I wasn't a prima donna author and I was very flexible and and I was very responsive whenever they asked for anything to change. So I was um, basically somebody that they felt would be good to work with. And they submitted my books to Lucasfilm to say, hey, how about this guy? And they read my books and said, sure, how about that guy? And I mean, I didn't know any of this. This was all behind the scenes. Right. And I got um, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time. So California. While you explain this, um, I'm going to bring up some of your your books for everyone to see. You go right ahead. Um, I'm and so I'm I'm on the West Coast and I got I came home from work because I had a regular job at the time. I came home from work and it was Friday afternoon and it was my New York editor saying um, on the answering machine, Kevin, I uh, call me right back as soon as you can. I've got something really important to ask you and and call me as soon as you can. Of course, this was Friday afternoon and it was after New York had closed. So I'm stewing all weekend long. Like, what does my editor want? What is so important? And I called her up first thing Monday morning and she just starts off with, with um, Kevin, do you like Star Wars? And I said, right. well, of course I like Star Wars. Everybody likes Star Wars. What do you want? She says, how'd you like to write three sequels to it? And I'm like, thinking long and hard for about a nanosecond. And I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And, and cause I, I mean, I knew Tim's book was out there. I hadn't read it yet. And I just knew that there was big star Wars fan and I was a big star Wars fan. And I thought, sure, that's a natural. And they offered me the Jedi Academy trilogy. And well, I, I mean, they offered me a trilogy and I'm the one who came up with the Jedi Academy part, but right. Um, and then that spun off to um, the three anthologies and Dark Saber and the Young Jedi Knight series and the Jabba's Palace pop-up book and the uh, the illustrated Star Wars universe, which is just one of the really cool ones because I got to work with Ralph McQuarrie month after month after month for like a year and a half, and that was just—I mean, Ralph was this legend, and I was just very sitting in the studio as he's doodling away ice geysers and swamp monsters, Ooh. and that was just very cool. 
Oh, man, you got to tell us a little bit more about that. You can't just name drop Ralph McQuarrie and not go into great, great detail. I, yeah. Very few people, and we've had them all on this show, Dennis Murin, et cetera. Um, not, not a lot of people uh, have, uh, have told us a lot of Ralph's stories. What, what was he like? Well, Ralph was, was – okay, so the whole project was – it's this big, beautiful book, and I, I don't even know if it's available. If, if it is, you should get one because they're in – trade paperback it's a uh, do you mean the double volume the massive double volume uh, book uh, well there is i have one of those but that's not what i'm talking about okay what, what i did was called the illustrated star wars universe it mm -hmm. was it was pitched to me as they wanted to do a national geographic like a national geographic coffee table book of the planets in the star wars universe and at the time there were only uh, seven, eight, whatever, the, the basic ones, Hoth and Tatooine and Alderaan and stuff. And so they wanted me to work with Ralph McQuarrie. And I I happened to live within driving distance of both Skywalker Ranch and where Ralph lived. His studio was in Berkeley, California. Mm. And so we, we did, basically I had to write a fake Na National Geographic article about Coruscant or about uh, Dagobah or about Hoth or about Tatooine or, or all the all the specific things and I would sit with Ralph in his studio wow. and we would just talk okay this month we're working on Hoth and what could be interesting on Hoth Dude. and and so he's sketching away doing things and and I'm just coming up with these pie in the sky uh, ideas about hey what about uh ice geysers so there's like these volcanic vents but hoth is really cold so the steam builds up like these giant monoliths of of ice and and he's sketching away and his studio was really cool that he had shelves and shelves and shelves of national geographic magazines but unlike i mean they weren't organized in like chronological order he had this shelf had all the really great photographs of the arctic and this shelf had all the really great photographs of the Amazon jungle. And this shelf had all the really great photographs of the uh, Sahara Desert. And so while we were doing this Hoth thing, he thought, I remember this really good icicle photo. And so he rummages through his National Geographics and pulls one of them out and he flips it to the page. And, and sure enough, there's like the most awesome photo of, of these dangling icicles from some, um, you know, Arctic photo shoot. And so he's looking at this icicle photograph as he's painting things. And um, it's kind of a classic painting. He did it for the illustrated star Wars universe book of uh, there. It's at ats walking on the, on the snow fields of Hoth and there's an ice geyser there and there's kind of sun hitting off of a big icicle and the sun hitting off of that icicle was like directly taken from this photo that he remembered from uh, National Geographic and and he would send me letters and I, I sent him the Jedi Academy trilogy and he sent me back some letters with just a bunch of Ralph McCory sketches doodled on them and wow and, oh man no don't tell anybody I have those but do you yeah. have those oh, I'm just gonna, wow. <laughs> oh yeah I have those um and we made up like and Bespin the the Tabana gas mine so we came up with all these these gas refineries floating in the clouds and and one had um, turned into sort of like a ghost town because its gravitation generator had broken down. So it's kind of tilted and it's got skeletal girders all over the place. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm just like, 
okay, it's Bespin. Why don't we do this? And and he's just he's got this little felt tip flare pen on white sketch paper, and it's just like a mile a minute sketching all these things. And and he was very quiet and very humble and very sweet. And and he didn't quite understand what all the fuss was about. And um, I I mean he he's the guy that made Star Wars. I mean the. Yeah. The story yeah, yeah, yeah. is that Ralph, that George Lucas couldn't get studios to get what he was trying to do. And so he had Ralph paint all those. I mean, they're now classic paintings of uh, like the Jawa Sandcrawler coming over the dune or um, there's the Luke and Darth Vader having their lightsaber battle on the, on the death star. And I mean, these are all just things that Ralph read the script and he painted them and George showed the paintings and said, that's the movie I want to make. Yeah. And, so, so in my head, I always thought George wouldn't le let Ralph by himself, uh, you know, all that often. Did you ever interact with George Lucas during the times when you and Ralph McQuarrie were working on this book? I, I met George, I think, twice, and he wanted to meet me because this this project meant a lot to him because Ralph, he was so close with Ralph, um, and he had read or approved or you know I can't prove it, but he he liked the Jedi Academy books and he thought I would be a good a good pick for the illustrated Star Wars universe book, and you know he just wanted to make sure that that the book came out and he was so happy with the the book when it came out that George bought a copy of it for every employee of Lucasfilm for Christmas. That's cool. That's pretty That's sweet. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I. See, I'm like a fanboy. You just put put a nickel in me, and I'm just like going on. Yeah, man, I, I just loved working on this. No, I'm just trying to figure like, yeah, go where ahead, do we go, go next with these questions? Like, it's just, I, just so. Look, I would love to actually dig into Jedi, uh, the uh, the Jedi Academy series, a little bit because to me, the fascinating thing about that trilogy of books, and you know, I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, is that it is so similar uh, thematically and and uh, and narratively to what we got, you know, in the sequels. Maybe not, you know, look, I, it's no secret to how people, you know, think of, of how I feel about the sequels. I, I didn't like them. Um, but in, in the Jedi Academy series, you have a lot of the same hallmarks um, as in the sequels. When you were watching the sequels, did, you, did that jump out at you? You know, the, the Starkiller base versus the Sun Crusher, uh, Kip versus Kylo, um, did any of these things jump out at you when you were watching uh, the sequels? Oh yeah, there there was a lot of stuff that I felt that was at least inspired by some of the stuff that I did. But um, and in fact, the the Han Solo movie, all the Spice Mines of Kessel came out of out of my yep. stuff, and the Maw, the Maw, the Kessel Run, the the black hole cluster named the Maw. I mean, so they they clearly read my stuff, but. They can. They. I mean, they own it. That whatever <laughs> for them, they own all the stuff. They. They could have right. just made Jedi Search as a movie, and they didn't have to ask me. I mean, there's no sour grapes here. They. Mm -hmm. All that stuff was theirs. It was their toys and their toy box, and they could do what they want. And um, I, I remember when I was watching the solo movie, they just threw in this off offhand meth offhand mention of uh, this. Imperial stormtrooper base called the the Carita base, and I went that name. That's from my book, and yeah, why so I, I get. I mean, imagine Kip brothers like, dies. Yeah, Kip loses his brother. Yeah, so just think about um, being a fanboy and watching the new Star Wars movie and going, "Ooh, that's from my stuff." And that's um, yeah, sweet. I mean that's cool. I yeah. I mean uh, 
yeah, I can certainly see similarities between Kylo Ren and, and Kip Duran, and, and that's cool with me. I, Ky Kylo, K-Y-L-O, and Kip, K-Y-P. I mean, you're kind of... <laughs> you know, but, but to me, the most fascinating similarity, and, and Nia, please jump in whenever you want here, but for me, the most fascinating similarity is actually how Kip turns to the dark side um, by the kind of, you know, metaphysical or, or spiritual or weird force connection that he has with Exar Kun. And Exar Kun is able to manipulate him from a, a great distance and get Kip to pretty much lose his, you know, bleep and go on a serious rampage. Um, and um, which is, which is awesome. And that, you know, in, in the sequels, you hear Leia say, Oh, Kylo, you know, was lost when, when Snoke got to him. And that's pretty much all the exposition we get about that connection. But could you speak a little bit about how you kind of derived this telepathic, long-distance, spiritual possession almost of Exar Kun and Kip? Well, a lot of that, I mean, when I when I did the whole idea for the trilogy, I thought, well, let's do a a Jedi Academy trilogy where Luke is training new Jedi. And of course, at least one of them has got to go bad. I mean, that's just kind of your obvious thing. If you're going to do, uh, do the group of, of Jedi Knights that somebody's going to fall to the dark side because we know that Luke's father was Obi-Wan's disciple or, or they didn't have the word Padawan then um, that, that Luke's father had uh, be, been trained by Obi-Wan as a Jedi. And then he went to the dark side. So if Luke is going to train a dozen of them, at least one of them is going to go bad. So we want that story. Um, I I don't I don't like evil bad guy villains. I like people who have like made the wrong decisions and kind of gotten things worse and worse and worse. And Kip's a good guy. If you see him at the beginning, I mean, he gets rescued from the spice mines and and he's Han's surrogate son in in the books. Um, and and he's a good guy and he just kind of overextends himself and he. He takes this shortcut and he makes that shortcut and he gets worse and worse and worse. And and remember Michael Douglas in the movie Falling Down at the end where he stands up and goes, what, you mean I'm the bad guy? Right, uh, right. And that's, that's kind of where, where Kip was. And then, of course, he, he redeems himself uh, in the end. And so that's what we wanted to do. And then we wanted him to be uh, possessed or or... Uh, manipulated by the the quote the spirit of a long dead dark lord of the sith and i hadn't really plotted much more than that and then tom veach and i started uh we i wrote the introduction for the dark empire collection mm. and so i got i got to know tom veach quite well he, he's the one who wrote all those scripts and then tom veach was just creating a brand new series called Tales of the Jedi, which took place, uh, I think, 4,000 years before the movies. And I'm plotting my Jedi Academy books, and I had the spirit of a long-dead Dark Lord of the Sith, and I didn't know anything more than that. And Tom is doing these Tales of the Jedi adventures with the history of the old Jedi 4,000 years ago. And so Tom and I were talking, and I said, well, what if my long dead Dark Lord of the Sith lived, oh, I don't know, like 4,000 years before the movies? And we could tell his story in your comics. And he thought that's a perfect crossover, a great way to do the origin. And so we sort of developed that whole story of Exar Kun 
in the comics as I was plotting and writing the Jedi Academy book. So it was um, very intertwined and connected that way. And, and it just made it feel like we had a great plan all along. Well, yeah. let, let, me, let me throw in an editorialize here because you commented about the, the sequel movies. And yeah, you know, I'm sure you saw, I'm sure you saw a couple of weeks ago that J.J. Uh, Abrams came out in an interview right. that said, yeah, maybe we should have had a plan for these three movies. Right. And I, you know, I, I, I love Star Wars. And if you insult Star Wars, anything about Star Wars, it's like picking on my little sister. And I get to pick <laughs> on my little sister, but you can't pick on my little sister. Right. Right. And, and so I, I loved every Star Wars movie. There were lots of things that I would like to have done differently in several of them. But I have to say, I was really pissed off when I heard JJ say that. Yeah. Because I thought, wait a minute, you are being handed a multi billion dollar intellectual property. And that's like, would Disney say to an architect, just build us a gigantic new multi-billion dollar Disney theme park in Sydney, Australia, but you don't need to plan it ahead of time. You don't need to do blueprints or you don't need to plan. Just start digging holes and building walls and I'm sure it'll all come up, come together right. Right, right. I mean, how like, this is, these are the three, you knew these were going to be the three biggest movies of the decade. Do you blame and him you or do you, do you blame up Episode seven, this happens. Episode eight, this happens. And episode nine, this happens. I, I, I don't understand that from a business perspective or a perspective. It, 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 you can tell I'm, it, it bothers me because I, I, I really, these, this is like sacred territory to me as a fan, not, not just because I wrote in it, but as a fan, it's like, wait a minute, if you're being handed the job to do the, the last three star Wars movies or the last trilogy or whatever, um, for Pete's sake, write up some notes. Yeah, have a phone call. Yeah, uh, and that's and, and that's that's what read, read your trilogy, read your yeah. trilogy, and just copy that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm not advocating that they should have made my books or Tim's or anybody <laughs> right. else's. I, oh, I think it would have been better if they made your books. You know, the well, sequel it's trilogy, basically but, the same. Look, it's basically the same story. I'm sorry. Go ahead. My, well, my, my question is, you know, do you do you put the blame on JJ or Ryan, or do you put it on someone above him? You know, do you put it on Disney? It's like, I, I'm wondering who was the well, one. I'm, that really, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to point fingers, but what, I mean, JJ is kind of notorious for making it up as he goes along and that's how his process is. That's what he does. You can't do that in Star Wars. And, and, and that's well, and, and the Star Trek, the Star Trek reboot, the motion picture, the, the, or whatever it's Star Trek, I think is all it was yeah. called. I mean, it, it had so much great stuff and then it just kind of fizzles because they didn't plan it. And um, I, I feel that, Ryan did a bunch of stuff in, in episode eight and then JJ kind of did, I don't like that. And I'm going to contradict everything. It's almost like Bobby Ewing waking up in a shower and going, Oh, the whole last season was just a dream. <laughs> and then they went back. Um, you know, you know, be, be, beyond, beyond them not having a plan, which is obvious. Um, I think the thing that I, cause look, I feel the same way. I'm doing a star Wars podcast. That article that, that you speak of was actually published on my, former site, you know, that I own. So I'm obviously deeply embedded into this stuff and I love the stuff, but to me, the greatest um, offense of the sequels was really in the treatment of Luke. And in, in it, Luke had this incredible character arc 
that, you know, for sure can evolve and change and, and be challenged and questioned as you move forward, but it can be inconsistent. And, you know, with, with the Jedi Academy trilogy, it's a great example because Kip is a disaster. Kip is using a star-crushing spaceship to kill millions of people. I mean, he is as he is as, uh, well, he as means off well. He means but he, well, right? But he's as off the road as it gets. And throughout the entire story, and look, I haven't read it in in so many years, but Luke is always trying to bring him back. Luke knows that, like that, he's worth saving. You know that 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 there's still redemption in people and i think that that was the kind of thing with luke that was precious as a character trait that was heavily violated in the sequels do do, do you have any thoughts about luke's treatment well you know i i'm not one of the total haters of the last jedi in fact there were some parts in the last jedi that just blew me away that the final battle with kylo ren when it turned out it was just luke's astral projection just just left my jaw on the floor. I thought that was just so astoundingly perfect that I, I loved that. Um, and I, I loved lots of other parts of it, but you know, that movie, every problem for the empire would have been solved if they just landed a little bit closer to the target. I mean, the whole final battle across the salt flats, all the walkers, they land on the other side of the salt flats and then they walk across so that they can get attacked. <laughs> Well, if you're coming down from space, why don't you land on the right side of the salt flats instead of the far side of the salt flats? Um, and the, the whole slow motion chase after when they're chasing the, the rebel fleet and the Imperials pop out behind them and they're slowly. Well, if they had just popped out a little bit closer in the movie. Right. 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 Um, so so there's all there's all that. And I, I did really like the Ray and Kylo fighting uh, the the Crimson Guard and the and Snoke and and person and remember I'm I got to do this disclaimer I am just speaking as a fanboy here I have not yeah, worked yeah, yeah. This film for a long time uh, I don't I don't have any connection to these movies and they can they can make Jar Jar Binks and Ewoks movies if they want that it's not going to be high on my priority but if that's I'd watch that do, that's, be, that's what be great um, I I thought Snoke was kind of a boring villain I just thought. Who who is this ugly guy and where did he come from and and right. you know it just it didn't do a lot for me but you know well, I didn't you want to know more about him though until they you know well the problem was is that he he just was basically a a fifth generation carbon copy of Palpatine I mean he was still cadaverous and evil and kind of heh 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 and then he dies and then. The Rise of Skywalker is, oh, wait, we forgot to mention this the last movie, but Palpatine's back and he has the giantest fleet in the entire universe. And we didn't notice that being built either. No, and, no, yeah. you, you know, you know what actually bugged me was the, the new comic that came out where it's between episode five and six and it's canon where Vader goes to Exegol and he's observing the entire fleet that's just just chilling there, just sitting there. And Palpatine's, you know, walking around Exegol with him and just kind of like showing him everything that's going on. And and then they go back to, you know, space and, and they never talk about Exegol again. And it's like, well, why didn't you tell Luke this? Why, you know? why didn't you remember there's this big fleet sitting there? Oh, why yeah, didn't you, yeah, what, what I, the heck? I, I left the keys. But, you know, the thing that I just could not get past was the galloping horses on the outer surf, outer hull of the Star Destroyer. And yeah. Right. 
And then they don't even rescue the horses. They just blow up the Star Destroyer. So, <laughs> Which, which yeah. kind of like goes against everything Ryan did in the second film with that whole arc right, against right. The, the, the horse. But, but like I said, this is my little sister and you can't pick on her. So we, even, even Star Wars that makes me slap my head is still Star Wars. And I'm glad that, that we're getting something. And, and yeah. so, and I, I don't even, I mean, I watch the Mandalorian every week. I, I'm a couple episodes behind on the bad batch, but I'm, I'm, I'm still a fanboy, and I still keep watching it. I, in fact, you guys tell me. I don't even know what Star Wars films are in the works now. Is there anything else? Oh my God, man! Dude, there, there's so much coming. There's the Ahsoka show. There's the Acolyte show, which I'm really looking forward to. That takes place 200 years before Episode One, and it's supposed to govern. Um, it's supposed to take place, or it's supposed to focus on a female Sith, a female dark. These are side shows acolyte. or movies or what? These are shows. Yeah. There's only one shows. movie. Like there's only one movie in known development. Yeah, what um, was it? Rangers? No, not Rangers. No, it was no, um, Rogue, Rogue Squadron. Rogue Squadron. Yeah, yeah. It, it's um, it, it's actually it's directed by the lady who directed um, uh, uh, one Patty Jenkins. Movie. Yeah, yeah, Patty Jenkins. Yeah. Okay. And then there's the Obi One show. I don't know yeah, if you know about, about that. that one. Yeah, I'm crazy about that one. I can't wait till it comes out. Well, I mean, the the Mandalorian just kind of reset everything for me because I went, "Wow, this is really good," and you can yeah. really keep doing this good, and and um, it showed what they can. What they can pull off and what they can pull off with some planning but i think it's because they have the right people behind you know they, john favreau did you ever meet dave filoni or no i guess he, um, he wasn't there yet no I, and i don't think so but i it yeah. seems like that the favreau and filoni seem like they're good in their heart dedicated fanboys and they want to make really good star wars stuff yeah and and again i'm i've never met them i'm just speaking as a fan i really appreciate what they so. do i think that they're um and and again, I don't know this. It did not feel to me that JJ had this deep understanding of the Star Wars universe. Um, it just kind of felt like, wait, this isn't how you do that. And yeah. um, I, I don't know. I'm I, I'm glad yeah, they came know. out, and I'm glad they were successful. And I, I, I guess I was the most disappointed in uh, the Rise of Skywalker because it felt like they hadn't had a plan and they were kind of scrambling to duct tape things together and and yeah that's a tough one that's backpedaling a, a little bit yeah well i mean the, the, here's the fundamental core thing like we don't know who ray's parents are and so the question is which what ryan wanted to do was and i kind of like this idea that ryan wanted to do is no you don't have to be uh a noble bloodline from some famous, you don't have to be the Clintons or the Bushes. You can just be a random person and mm -hmm. have the force in you. Yeah. And that's, that's a great idea. And I think it fits with the core of what Star Wars is. Yeah. If you're going to take that approach, then don't make this gigantic mystery of who are raised parents. Right. Because that doesn't matter. Um, and then, but, 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 that's the disconnect. but that's the disconnect we're talking about because Ryan sets up that mystery box that he talks about in his TED Talks, um, you know, as the device. Ryan comes in. They barely speak to each other. Um, he's pretty much working in a vacuum, and he just goes with it wherever he wants. He doesn't really care about the mystery box thing anymore. He makes it nobody's, which I think is cool to your point. It's not a bad angle, right? It, it, yeah. It's it's like, like the end, but, but the kid in the stable gets the broom. I mean, that all of 
all of that is like, oh, cool. So we can all be Jedi. It, it does. We don't have to be. That's something George said in, in, in one of the interviews I was reading from the Star Wars Archives book, with Paul Duncan. He said that every person can use the force. It just depends if they're into that thing or not and if they train it or not. It doesn't mean they're going to be as powerful as Anakin, but they can right. all use the force. So you, me, her, anybody. It's it's so, so personally, I liked that direction better than oh wait, Ray is Palpatine's granddaughter. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that just kind of and I didn't like if Palpatine is coming like in the Dark Empire comics, when Palpatine comes back, he's like lean and muscular and, and right, young and 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 badass. And, yeah, 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 he's so young. Why would you bring yourself back and become you know right. <laughs> like all face? That's a good and, point. Uh, That's a good point. Yeah. Um, you know, to go back to your novels for a second, because um, yeah, let's let's go back to safer territory. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's fine. It, you know, we can go back and forth. I just really want to ask you this question, because we had Mike Stackpole on the show, and he was a great guest. And uh, you know, one of his novels is I Jedi, and okay. to me, it's always was was so cool because I Jedi is basically a, a very. It's the same story that you're telling, but from a different perspective. Um, right. Did you guys actually? Uh, work with each other or kind of compare notes or, or like how, how did you guys kind of pull off that, you know, shortcut style, same, you know, Pulp Fiction-esque thing with I, Jedi and your novels? Well, you got to know that Mike Stackpole and I, I met Mike Stackpole, I think when I was 16 years old and he was oh, like wow. 18 or 19 years old. Hmm. Mike Stackpole was running this little kind of a play-by-mail role-playing game company called, I think, White Buffalo. And he hired me to write some like world-building packets for him. And we've been friends ever since. I mean, so I this is 20 years before we worked on the Star Wars stuff. And so I intentionally, so Luke at the Jedi Academy, Luke Skywalker has 12 Padawans, although they weren't called Padawans then. He has 12. And if you think of the symbolism there, if you've got Luke Messianic figure having 12 disciples and you take it from there. But I intentionally only named six of the 12 so that there would be six unnamed ones that somebody else could make up if they wanted to. And Mike called me and said, hey, I want to do this. And do you mind if one of those unnamed six is, is Corin Horn? I went, that's why I left them unnamed. You go right ahead. And um, That's awesome. So yeah, we we worked on that i mean i i didn't i didn't like tell him what to do or or proofread his manuscript or anything but we, he, he asked me about it and we we left some gaps for him if lucasfilm were to call you today and be like hey we want you to create well, what would you want to do going forwards would you want to continue where you left off or would you want to create some new timeline in star wars with some new characters you know, the, the thing that i would probably love to do most is just some some full-on novels like in the tales of the jedi period because that's mm -hmm. pretty much unexplored mm -hmm. and, and see the thing is there have been so many novels written i can't possibly read all of those of course they're all legends now except for whatever the new batch is mm -hmm. uh and there's been so much stuff that i when i wrote mine I knew every iota of the canon. I knew every frame of every droids and Ewoks cartoon. And I watched the Ewok movies. And I, I mean, I knew everything. But right. now, I, I mean, I'm still finishing the last season of The Clone Wars. And I, I just can't even keep up just watching it. Much less, like when I'm writing it, I got to watch it on a constant loop. You got to keep, keep this in your head. And 
if I were to try to write something in like the 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 episode eight time frame or something like that, I'm just I'm just not enough up to speed. And so Tales of the Jedi or or even pick a different three thousand years before the movies, then that's kind of virgin territory and you can have it look and feel like Star Wars, but you can have your own characters and like when we made up XR Kun and Ulik Keldroma and his brother Kay and all this, this was all brand new stuff. And we had all the planets we wanted to run around on and and we made up Korriban, the the crypt planet of the Sith, and yeah. and all of that was just like Hey, how about we do this? And how about we do this? And and all the Young Jedi Nice books, we just we visited so many different planets and went to uh, so many different places that um, we just we just had a blast with that. You know, I'm going to pick your brain for a second because you know this is the beauty of this show is that I can. Um, so with with Korriban, right? I just got chills when you said that because I spent months of my life on Korriban when I was playing Star Wars, uh, the old Republic uh, MMO, like six, seven years ago. Um, and Theory and I have projects where we need to name things that are not known things, but kind of similar. How, how did you come up with that name, Korriban? I was just going to, dude, I was just going to ask that, man. <laughs> Were you really? Yeah, literally, it's like, how did you come up with all these names? Because you know, we're, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, because, I mean, you you have XR Kuhn. I mean, that is the coolest Star Master Wars name. Bodo, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Keldroma. I mean, like, yeah. uh, what's the process? You're asking me, like, I made this up 30 years ago, and I'm trying to go, really? <laughs> you want me to fuck up? How I came up with that name, XR Kuhn, 30 years ago. Um I don't know. You just make funny sounds and and what looks cool on the paper. Right. And, and, okay. Yeah, you know, I, I actually think some of some of the names in in Star Wars sound a little goofy, but I, I kind of want my Xar Kun. You know that that's not a female character who's a a bashful, starry eyed romantic with a name right. like Xar Kun. You know that's a badass dude, right? Yeah. Um, and and. Uh, I, I can't come up with you know any of these random ones, but Korriban, that name sounds like it's a Sith planet, right? But uh, like Alderaan sounds like this bucolic, uh, lots but, of grass. But is there etymology in the word Korriban? Like the like core based on a rock that you saw Macquarie draw or ban, or is there like any type of like root? words that you're playing off of uh, he just made things. noises and he and, and he said it sounded cool <laughs> you are overthinking it too much we just oh that sounds cool and and we just throw it in and you know it, right, it, well, a lot of a lot of them end up on the cutting room floor like like dorcas dingus is not going to be a, a sith lord's name right should be the name of our character we're me and mark are making a saber company and we have a character that we we come up with and we we have a whole backstory we just need a cool name so Maybe Dorcas Dingus can be. <laughs> yeah, like Kip. I think Kip is such a cool name because it's such a. Well, what Kip I love about an Kip is, is name. Kip, it's a Kip hero's was, name. It's a well, hero's name. But it's also a good guy's name, and it's yeah. a and it's a. Well, they like Han is a per. It's a fake name, but it's a perfect name. Yeah. Right. You say the word Han, and you just it rolls off the tongue. It's so easy, and I wanted another like short three-letter name. And, I mean, Kip sounds like the kid next door. Kip sounds like this kind of um, Opie from uh, Mayberry RFD or something like that. He sound, 
And, and that's intentional. He's supposed to sound wimpy and innocuous because he's going to turn into this badass. Yeah. And, and like if his, if his name, this kid's name was XR Kuhn, you would never think he was going to keep being this right. naive. No, little he kid, was but. the popular guy in high school. That's, that's XR Kuhn right there. Yeah. You know who else was named Kip was Napoleon Dynamite's brother. Well, I didn't see oh, the right. I until much, much, much later. Because <laughs> we're missing out, man. Um, okay, so um, last question that I have um, about your novels, because um, to me, I I always kind of wanted to see an on-screen representation of Jason and Jaina because so much was written about them and they were in so many of the different books and stuff. And I know that you kind of got them when they were very, very young. Was was there any kind of rules around Jason and Jaina, whether from Tim or from Lucasfilm? Like, were they treating them as like the next generation of of, of like Star Wars characters, or was it pretty much just do you know do what you want? Well, I, I don't think they had that much of a plan. I mean, for they're they're born at the end of Tim's trilogy, right? right. So, and in fact, what and they're what two years old, running around in, in Dark Apprentice. So they're like, yeah, they're, they're very young in yours. Precocious two-year-olds, and and they're they're running around doing stuff. But um, I'm trying to write this book, and Tim hasn't finished the last command yet. And I remember bugging him several times, like Tim, what are you gonna name them so I can put the names in my book? And oh wow, that's finally <laughs> came up with with Jason and Jaina. Um, but they didn't really come on their own until the Young Jedi Knights books. I mean, they're they're two-year-old kids in the Jedi Academy books, so they're. It, yeah. It's not like fully developed personalities when you're two year olds, but um, when you're when you're teenagers, the young Jedi Knights, we were able to really pull into. And Jason and Jaina in the Young Jedi Knights books are basically Ray and Kylo. I mean that that's that's right. the yeah. that they pretty much are. Um, and we just ran with those and we we had we wrote 14 of those books and they came out every three months for 14 books in a row and so we just, it was like this this manic because book number one no book number six no the other way around so book number one yeah. would come out while we were proofreading book number two because it was about to come out while we were editing book number three because we hadn't turned it in yet while we were plotting book number four because we needed to get started on that and trying to keep track of what what had actually happened and what hadn't happened yet was uh, that's why you outline that's why you plan these things ahead of time and well, yeah, and that, I, I found it funny when when Kathleen Kennedy and, and mind you this is not to discredit anything she's done not that my words could she's done a lot of great stuff for movies but she she said there's no source material for star wars and i'm just i'm looking at your books and i'm looking at you know tim's books i'm looking at everyone's books and i'm just like okay well i i i would <laughs> i would love to hear her comment on that comment because she's been dragged over the coals for that so many times yeah and i mean i i i admit i kind of had this knee-jerk being offended when I read that, I just went, but you approved all these books. So how did you not know they exist? Mm. So I, I don't quite know what she meant by that because there was abs. It doesn't have to be my books. There were a hundred books they could have chosen from yeah. and, and to not, and, and go back to what I said earlier, they own it all. So they can yeah. cherry pick whatever they want out of them. They own all this stuff. So it seemed 
I feel like they did go from the book. They did pick from the books. I mean, Palpatine comes back as a clone. Like, that's Dark Empire right there. Well, I, I mean, mean not as cool, that, but... But, but the some, sun crusher. But sometimes, though, there's an obvious... Look, I made up the Jedi Academy, and one of the students goes bad. And then they do Luke train other Jedi students, and one of them went bad. That yeah. doesn't mean that they stole it from my book, and, and they can't steal it because they, they can't goes steal it. They own it. Right? Goes own back it. the so, same exact way, for the record, for the listener. Right, but but they, it, it's kind of an obvious idea for a sequel if that's what you're going to do. And I I personally don't think that J.J. Abrams read 190 books and tried to see what he liked out of all of them. I just can't imagine he would do that. So, you know, they. I, I mean, they they have they own all this stuff. They can do whatever they want. No, I I don't have any animosity towards JJ. I think he got you know a, a massive contract to write and direct Star Wars sequels, and he took it. You know, but I just don't think he was well, qualified we for were, the job. To be honest. Well, we were talking about you know where do you put the blame, and I'm just just not the creative thing on a, on a business sense. Yeah. If you're going to do these three movies that you know are going to be a multi-billion-dollar franchise. Disney is notorious for test marketing and, and planning to the last detail. So I just don't quite understand the, the business thinking behind just make up episode seven and we'll figure out episode eight afterward. And then we'll figure out episode nine after that. I just, yeah. I, when I sell a trilogy of books, I write my outline and I say, book one, this happens, book two, this happens, book three, that happens. And they need to see that before they buy it. So right. there, there, there is there is kind of a reason for it in a way, and um, the C, the former CEO, his name escapes me right now, uh, kind of touched on it in his books, and uh, and George Lucas himself Iger. touched on it. Uh, yeah, uh, um, um, Bob Iger. Iger. Yeah. yeah, and Lucas in that interview with the guy from PBS also talks about it. Um, when when Lucas sold Star Wars to Disney. Lucas was was brought on as the creative executive in charge of Star Wars. When uh, they were making, uh, they took the screenplay that him and Michael Arndt had developed for Episode Seven, and they wanted to change it around. And like Lucas says says in in his interview, and the quote is that they wanted to go quote unquote nostalgic with it, and that that wasn't what he wanted to do. So he said it's better to just separate. And just cut ties because this is going to be. I sold it. I have to live with that, and I can't like sell it and not sell it at the same time because they own it. They get to make the final decision. So Lucas steps away, and that creative executive role that he was filling no, didn't get filled up until just recently when they assigned Dave Filoni to that role. I believe a few weeks ago. Um, but, um, so for, for a very, very long time, um, there was no rudder, you know, there was no creative North star. And like, you know, like theory said, like Kathleen Kennedy is one of the most important producers in the history of Hollywood. I mean, you can't tell the Hollywood story without mentioning her name. It's just not possible. You know? So, you know, she's incredibly talented, but she, I think she thought, Hey, if I hire the most creative people in the world, they'll figure it out. And 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 when you're running a franchise as 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 big as that, you need that Kevin Feige, George Lucas, Rudder to keep everything tidy, or you know, and and on mission, right? So anyway, 
I've said this a hundred well, times. Everybody knows again, how to what, when when yeah. we actually run the studios, we can call the shots. But but for now, we're just sort of little <laughs> little underlings. And I, you know, I I can't I I still enjoy them. Even even the parts that I didn't like, even the whole like in in Rise of Skywalker that the Death Star wreckage that's in the water with the giant waves, and they they oh, fly cool. there in a spaceship and land. And then they get a boat to go over these waves. And I'm going, well, why don't you just fly a little bit farther and land on the wreckage there? Just right, right, like right. Loren does, right? So um, it's like the Millennium Falcon goes to that planet Bach 2 or whatever, whatever it's called, the one with that, that Luke is hiding in. And they land on the bottom of the hill and make Ray climb like for three days up the yeah. mountain. <laughs> but okay, last oh, question yes, about your book. So we're we're not gonna do we're we're not gonna pick on the little sister. We're we still yeah. I still love Star Wars and I, I get, get such a kick out of it and I have all the soundtrack records and I play them in the background and they inspire me and and, and Star Wars has been very, very good to me. So I'm not Amen. Gonna, Amen. Me too. I, and and theory as well, I'm sure. Last question about your books. This is the fanboy in me, and I gotta get this out. Um, Kip and Kip was. I'm trying to put my head around this. Was was Kip ever formally Jason's master, and Jason was his apprentice, or how do you like, like talk? Yeah, explain. I wrote this 30 years ago. I don't remember that. (laughs) You know, I have now published 172 books, so I can't (laughs) remember that detail of that book from 30 years ago. Because to me, that relationship was fascinating. All right, well, look, like I said, I'm a fanboy, so. I'll have to uh, read it myself and come up with my own uh, thoughts on it. There, there's one question from uh, one of your fans here. They say, Darksaber was a joy. How did you come up with the idea of the Jedi focusing their powers to eliminate each other's weaknesses and bolster each other's strengths during the act of pushing away Adam Star Destroyer? Ah, well, see, that was one of, that was actually a discussion in Lucasfilm, and, and Tim Zahn was in it, and we were we were trying to decide what the limits of a Jedi's powers were. Cause there was one other author at the time. I won't say who it was. And this was a not, not approved, but there was a, the, that Luke got so powerful that he himself could just knock star destroyers out of the sky and stuff. And we thought if you give powers that bad, that's kind of, yeah. that makes them boring. I mean, it, it's Superman with no kryptonite. And it's so cheat code. We, yeah. we, we really had to figure out what was the limits of, a Jedi's power. I mean, obviously Yoda's lifting X-wings and stuff like that. So you could do that. And I think I had, if I remember something in, in uh, dark saber where, where Luke actually, he doesn't fly, but he's like falling out of a, of a orbiting. Well, he's not orbiting. It's in the atmosphere and he's using the force to sort of slow him down enough so that he can make a soft landing. And we felt that that was a perfect extrapolation of, you can lift X-Wings, so why can't you lift yourself and just make yourself not yep. crash? But in the scene that that the questioner is talking about, I, I believe all the Jedi apprentices sort of got together and kind of combined their powers to push a Star Destroyer either out of orbit or, or again, this was a long time ago and I haven't read it since. Um, but we felt that if they could all pool their powers and all of them put it together, it would be an additive thing and then they could do it. But then there is the kryptonite because one of the Jedi uh, dies during that. It sort of burns him out because he's the focusing the conduit. 
and it, it fries his brain to do that. So um, we, we were careful not to make the Jedi too super powerful. Um, that, that was another little objection we had in, in The Last Jedi where Ray trains for what, five minutes and suddenly she's able to list, to do all kinds of things. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, that's the, the limitations of a movie. I mean, if you, if you show somebody training for six months, it gets to be long and boring movie. But, um, I, if, and I believed what Lucas had said in that other interview, that if everybody has the force and everybody can tap into it, it's gotta be very rare that somebody can do like Anakin level yeah. powers. Which yeah. is why I guess he introduced the midi chlorines and everything. I know I told you thirty minutes. We're now going on an yeah, hour. Thirty so minutes. That, that, yeah. That's long. It's well, you're you're, you're very interesting to speak with, and uh, it's your fault. So, yeah. um, uh, did you want to shout out Wordfire and let the audience? Yeah, know? well, I've got. I mean, obviously, I've written other stuff, but besides Star Wars, I've done a lot of Dune novels with Brian Herbert and. Um, we've got a new one coming out in September called The Lady of Caladan. That'll be our, I think, 16th book that we've done novel that we've done together. And we've got a monthly comics coming out from Boom Studios called House of Traities. For, that's also Dune. The Dune graphic novel just came out. Um, I've got a really big kind of Game of Thrones epic fantasy trilogy that started with Spine of the Dragon and the second book called Venge War. And the third one comes out in in January called Gods and Dragons. So it's like Game of Thrones, only mine's actually finished. Um, <laughs> right. so those those <laughs> books are coming out. Uh, well, the first two are out already. Uh, and if wordfire.com, there's like a reader's group newsletter thing you can sign up for and you get a free collection of my short stories, a free audio story that I read, plus a bunch of newsletters and things. Oh, and well, I don't have that many of them left, but I've got a bunch of signed Star Wars books on, we have a web store called wordfireshop.com. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we just got like 20 sets of the Jedi Academy trilogy that I signed and put up there in six hours. They also, oh, right on. So oh, got this one. Oh, they're also there now. Hold on. This one. Well, I have got to some ask, more. We got some more. Because I, I, I couldn't figure this out, but when I was prepping for this interview and I was uh, looking at up stuff about you, it says that you have the Guinness Book of World Records for the biggest, like, book signature of all time. That it ousted uh, St uh, Stephen King, um, but I, but I couldn't figure out which book it was. Was it a Dune book uh, or? No, it was it was a uh, it was called I Pedrito. It was sort of a funny spy versus spy thing, but it was um, written from an old movie script that L. Ron Hubbard had written. And I've been a judge for the Writers of the Future contest for like twenty eight years and we novelized it and this was the first new book of his and he's got armies of fans and we set we shut down a boulevard and in hollywood boulevard and we had a band and free banana splits and i think i signed two thousand autographs in one night as they were just coming up and um it was sort of like a, a walking dead zombie invasion but except oh. they all had books and they wanted me to sign them and, and <laughs> so, yeah i got looking up at it right now guinness world record there oh yeah. nice yeah Cool. All right, cool. Well, we thank you so much for your time, your extended right. time here. And uh, chat, we hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, go check out all of his books. They're all on Amazon and everywhere else and bookstores and all that stuff. So thank you for your time and thank you for your time, sir. We will catch you all later. Until then, raise my friends. StarWarsTheory.com. <laughs> <laughs>